Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Easter Wednesday, April 15th, we're studying Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Today is the start of a new series here on Sharper Iron. It's called The Righteousness of God for You. This series will take us through St. Paul's Epistle to the Christian Church in Rome. It's a familiar letter to many of us, and yet the words of the blessed Dr. Martin Luther re remind us that we can never read it or ponder over it too much, for the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's what we'll discover firsthand over the next two months here on Sharper Iron, as we see how St. Paul lays out the basics of Christianity in this epistle. Our human righteousness cannot save us. We are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, but God has given us his righteousness, earned by Christ Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. That righteousness of God, given by his grace and received through faith in Jesus Christ, that is what saves us. That's the gospel, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Chris Hull. Pastor Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Brother Apple, thank you for having me. It's fun times. Indeed. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. You beat me to it, I tell you. But uh, it's your show, first... so I shouldn't beat you to the punch. Well, it's the first time all week I've gotten to say the first part. Everybody else has said it before me this way. So thank you for the for the privilege this morning. You know, that's what I'm always doing. I'm always looking out for my brother. That's what I'm known for. <laughs> what I'm uh, known, Pastor, sorry, I ended in a preposition there. I'm known for that as well. <laughs> Pastor Hall, glad to have you this morning to introduce the book of Romans to us to look at these first seven verses. So we're, we're getting started on the, on the book of Romans today. Hmm. And, and there's so much that can be said about this book. Give us, just give us some brief introductory comments here on the book of Romans. I think you've got some material from Luther particularly that will be helpful for us this morning. Oh, yeah. Well, looking at first uh, just details of the epistle, we it is St. Paul who wrote this epistle. This is a later epistle of Paul. This isn't one of his first writings. This is a, a you know, I mean, it's closer to the early parts. I mean, he already dies 80, 68, 68, 69. When does Paul die? 69? Some, something I like that. Yeah. One of those years, you know. Isn't that sad? Like, we remember, like, right now we know every detail of, like, COVID-19, but it's like, one of the chief guys who wrote like half the New Testament is like, ah, he died one of those years. Um, so it doesn't really matter. But when we look at this epistle, it's, it has a little more maturity to it than the epistle to the Galatians. Not as if it's for like, okay, now, now I've, I've, I've graduated to a new epistle. I can read Romans. It's just Galatians was one of his first ones. It's right out the bat, right out the gate. Uh, because he's dealing with people trying to bring the law back into a way of salvation. And with Romans, you know, he's had a couple more years of being scarred and beaten up. And he writes this beautiful letter to the saints who are in Rome. And 
in Luther's preface, and this is a, you know, I'd recommend everybody read the prefaces Luther writes. You, you have uh, smidgens of them in the Lutheran study Bible, which is great. You know, you have a couple paragraphs sometimes from Luther's prefaces, but it's a great uh, gift to own to have volume, and I believe it's Word and Sacrament Volume 1, I believe, is where you will find Luther's prefaces uh, to the books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Um, that's, and that's correct, that, Pastor Hull. That's, okay. that's Volume 35 of Luther's works in the American edition. I've, I've got it right here on my shelf. I'm about to pull it out. You're, you're exactly right. That's where you'll find hey. the prefaces. Go ahead. So Volume 35, and you'll see a Luther kind of gives a summary of Romans, and then he goes almost chapter by chapter through it. Um, another great place, like especially once you get into Romans 9 through 11, that doctrine of predestination, election, one of the, uh, besides going through the formula of Concord, like Article 11 on election, you can look at Luther's bondage of the will, because he gets very detailed into those chapters in that uh, discussion or debate, whatever you want to call it, with Erasmus on that. So in Luther's prefaces, he makes the main point here of Romans being this summary of all Christian doctrine, right? He, I think you made the point already, this is something Luther says we should memorize, word for word by heart, memorize Romans. And um, I think that's daunting to people today. Like, I, I'm working with my oldest son right now. He's being examined for confirmation this week. And we're going through the small catechism, and he's memorizing it. And he goes, Dad, this is, you know, it's tough. And I said, yeah, but you memorize things that mean something to you. Um, like you memorize the face of your wife. You memorize the faces and the smiles, the laughter, and the sounds of your children's voices. You, you memorize the smell of things. And we memorize the Word of God, not because we're forced to or it's a demand, but you memorize something because of how how tre how dear it is, how delightful it is, how comforting it is, how much joy it brings to you. So you don't just sit down and go, okay, today I'm going to purposely memorize. Now you can do that. There's no problem with it. But you memorize the book of Romans, as Luther would put it, because you're reading it so often. It's a book that has so much for you. And the main point Luther makes, that's one of my favorite parts in his preface to Romans, is when he talks about faith is this living, breathing, active thing that does what, what the Lord desires it to do. Before a good work can even be thought of, faith is doing it. It's a living, breathing, active thing, this faith. And it's a joyful thing. And where does faith go? It goes to the Word of God. So... As we start our, our walk through Romans, a good thing for everybody to do would be read Luther on Romans, his preface to Romans, but also to go to your book of Concord and go to the back of it and look at where every verse is quoted in Romans. I do this when I'm about to walk through a book with someone. I write down all of the times it's quoted in the book of Concord on a sheet of paper or even just write in the Bible itself next to those verses so I know where I can go in the book of Concord. They say, okay, yes, you know, verses 3 and 4 this morning in chapter 1 are quoted in article, oh, where is it? Man, I always get 6 and 7 and 8 mixed up, person of Christ and Lord's Supper and formula. It's in the person of Christ in the formula of Concord. That's article 8, isn't it? I believe you're correct. Yeah, yeah article 8. And that's where it's quoted, on the person of Christ, those two verses this morning. So you can meditate on who is the person, and then you read that. 
you know, read that article on who the person of Christ is so it helps and guides you in how to confess this word of God. Okay. Sorry, I got well, a little wordy there. I've never been known for that. No, that's, that's all good. It's all good stuff. So just a couple of things. I, I checked Dr. Steinman's book on uh, the, the dating of, of the Old Testament, New Testament called From Abraham to Paul. He puts the death of Paul in 67, 68 AD. So, so about that time. There we go. And as you said, as you said, this is one of Paul's later letters, his more mature letters. And not when we say that, we're not saying that his theology developed somehow, that he, he believed one thing at the beginning when it came to Galatians. And then then in the book of Romans, he, you know, it, it's different somehow, but rather he mm -hmm. he lays it out in a, in a fuller extent here. And, and likely, based on some of the reading that I, I've done, he writes this letter near the end of his third missionary journey. He's probably writing from Corinth. He's in Greece. He's going to be heading back to Jerusalem soon to bring the gift to the saints there. And, of course, in Jerusalem, that's where he'll eventually start his journey to Rome, eventually, as, as a prisoner. So, so we are looking at a, a later letter of Paul here, a, a fuller treatment of the gospel than, I mean, just in its— its breadth and depth here, Paul lays everything out. And as you said, Luther really, I mean, his, his preface to the book of Romans here is, is just fantastic. And, and he gives fuller oh. comments there in that, that volume that we referenced. But as you, as you think about, so the, that brings us then sort of into the content of this letter and, and the major themes of this letter. Paul's laying out for the Christian church in Rome the fullness of the gospel— what are those major themes, the content that we're going to encounter in this epistle? The themes we're going to encounter really flow from the article of justification. You're going to encounter the the wrath of God in volume one. This is what all men are under, right? Romans 1, 18, you're going to, everybody is under this wrath of God. And then you see Paul emphasizing that this law of God, this wrath of God is not just on you know, all those rank unbelievers, those men who exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. But it's also for you in chapter two, you who would say you are a holy person and yet live this way. You who tell people not to steal, yet you steal the hypocritical. So you see, it's kind of, it's those people that are blatantly outside the faith, blatantly rejecting it. But it's also you who live that whitewashed hypocritical life. And then he finally brings it home in Romans 3 when he says, you know, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified. So you see this beautiful change, this beautiful, not, not like going from one to the other, but this transition to this is how one is saved. And he then just goes through that, through Romans 4. And then in 5, you see this beautiful language of the first Adam, the second Adam. Romans 6, baptism is brought into it. Romans 7, you see the symbol. You see the, the reality of the life is this is who I am in Christ, yet this is what I see myself doing. And then you get into Romans 8, 9, 10, 11. You see the articles of predestination, election. This is all God's work. And that's really the overarching theme is you are not justified by what you do, but by what Christ does for you. So you see faith. You see grace. You see mercy, law and gospel, forgiveness. Just there's so much in this text. I mean, every pastor should walk through Romans with his congregation. I mean, you're not going to find any better place to actually just talk about every doctrine of the faith besides this book. 
the the words that Paul uses throughout this epistle are some of those very basic terms to Christianity that you've already mentioned, words that we learn in confirmation class for the first time, law, gospel, sin, grace, justification, all of all of these terms that sometimes we as Lutherans will throw out there and maybe just assume that people know what we're talking about because we told them what it was once. Paul's going to lay those out for us in, in Romans very clearly and, and in a way that, that we can really dig into those terms and, and appreciate them anew, put them into our hearts, the, the importance of all of this basics of, of Christianity. Uh, one, one final thought on, in terms of, because you mentioned, Pastor Hall, that, that in this book, justification is going to be the central article. And that that term, justification, is probably one of those terms that we use a lot, but maybe we don't always take the time to define what it is that we're talking about, why it is so why it's so important. So define that term justification for us. Uh, when we look at justification, one of the key terms there is reckon or declared. Justification is not a process of God slowly making you righteous by giving you a little bit of his grace and you using that grace to make sure you stay in the faith and improve over time. It's nothing that you do. You do not justify yourself. You do not, meaning you, you don't give the full reason as to why you can stand before your heavenly father and be welcomed into the eternal dwellings. You can't do it because all we have is sin. We have unbelief. We have apathy. We have laziness. We have all these this, this plethora of transgressions that we have. And we try to make excuses for them. We try to excuse them we'll, or justify them. This is why I did it. This is why I did it. But we are justified. We, we ourselves in Christ, on the cross, Christ wrapped himself up in all of our sins so that he may justify us. He may point to us and declare us righteous, just as he is righteous before his Father in heaven, and say, this person is worthy to be welcomed into the eternal dwellings because I have declared them righteous, even though they are not righteous, even though they are sinful. I have taken their sin and exchanged it for my holiness, and I have spoken them righteous in the forgiveness of their sins. The formula of Concord puts it beautifully when it says this justification is to be forgiven of your sins, to be declared holy, to be pronounced righteous, to be reckoned that way on account of Christ, on behalf of Christ. Christ stood in your stead on the cross, hung there in place of you, took the full wrath of the Father, that you may now hear the declaration of righteousness innocent, forgiven. And that's who we are in Christ. And the only thing that can take hold of that declaration is faith. It is not our works that merit that declaration. We don't work our way, and then Jesus says, okay, I'll say you're a good person. We trust in Jesus's word. We trust in his work on the cross. Faith justifies us. And that's the key thing we get. We are justified by faith apart from works of the law. We are justified by faith alone. It's by grace alone, like Paul will later say, like, you know, a few years later in uh, AD 60 to the Ephesians. Is it 60? I think it's 60. No, maybe. I can't remember. Um, it's sometime there. When he speaks to the Ephesians, it says, it is not by works so that no one may boast. It's by grace. It's by faith alone. 
we take hold of the grace of Christ alone. That's how we are justified. We are able now to stand before our Father in heaven, covered in the righteousness of Christ. Those 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 terms that you hear around Reformation Day, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, th- that's what we're going to encounter here in the book of Romans. So let's jump right in to the text now. Again, we're in the very first chapter of Romans, first verse, going through verse 7 this morning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the first seven verses of the book of Romans, Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Pastor Hall, this is the greetings of Paul's epistles, those first several verses that, that often share similar characteristics, are verses that I think sometimes we're tempted just to pass over because we know what's going to be in there. Mm. And if you do that in the book of Romans, there is so much that you miss already. Um, And and so, I mean, we're going to have plenty of opportunity here, not just to talk about the format of epistles, that this is the greeting and and so forth. But there's there's lots of doctrine just in these seven verses that we're going to get to look at. And and we'll get to that. But I want to start this morning jumping into the text with that very first word, Paul. And, and, And we said at the beginning, this is an epistle of Paul. But again, sometimes maybe we take this for granted. Who's Paul? Yeah. Well, you got to. It's interesting. I always talk about this with Paul. He is the one who watches all the coats while they stone Stephen. He is the persecutor of the faith. He, he's he's the tattletale. You know, he's not the guy with the sword chomping you off. He's the one who rats you out. And when you watch like movies, the rat is always the guy. It's like this Weasley guy no one likes. You know, I, I don't think anyone. I don't know if there's ever been a commentary where you call Paul Weasley, but it's like, have you ever seen the movie Goodfellas? You ever seen that one? Scorsese. I have not, you ever seen that? Go ahead. Oh, I've not. But I'm well, sure okay. some, I'm, we'll we'll I'm, pray for you. Not that it's like you should. It's not the best movie, but. It's about the mob, and the point is don't ever be a rat. Don't ever rat someone out, and everyone applauds you for it, right, because you you didn't – you spill the beans on everybody. You didn't tell what's really going on. But Paul, he's the one going town to town with the letter in his hand so he can bring everybody out of the houses and have them crucified or beheaded or or boiled or fed to the lions, whatever it was. He's that guy, and all of a sudden now – and you have Saul and Paul are just a Jewish way, and a, you know, you have that he, you have a, a Greek way of saying his name, because sometimes you still go by Saul in the book of Acts. But um, when we look at Paul now, he's going through as this apostle. Like, and in some places, he'll even say, like, I, and I'm, yes, I'm the lowest one, but I'm also the best one, too. Um, but he's the guy that, you know, just a year ago had my mom thrown in jail and killed. Who's this guy? To say he's now the apostle of Christ. 
And it shows yet again the mercy and grace of Christ Jesus, the patience of Jesus with us in our sin. I mean, would you welcome a new pastor who formerly was a persecutor of the faith? I mean, we, we, this is, seems hypothetical to us, but in, in this, it's a reality. And Paul is this man who now brings the good news to the Gentiles, to those who are really outside the faith. <laughs> and um, it's, it's a beautiful narrative looking at the life of Paul. So Paul here, this is the, the man who was formerly a persecutor of Christianity. Now, Acts chapter 9, he, he encounters the risen Christ. Christ comes to him, brings him to faith directly, and sends him to the Gentiles. And, and now is, is this apostle. And, and before he even names himself an apostle here in Romans chapter 1, the first title he uses for himself is is servant. He calls himself a servant. So, I mean, and we've talked a little bit about apostle, which is his, his second term for himself. But what about this term servant of Christ Jesus, Pastor Hall? Well, and this is a Greek word, doulos, slave, servant or slave. And we go with servant, I think, just because of our modern way of speaking. We don't want to use the terminology of slave. But a slave means you are now bound to somebody. And man, who was I reading? I can't remember who I was reading on this. When he calls himself slave and apostle, it's two different things. Slave is who he is as a Christian, and apostle is his vocation. Mm. Is your, your identity as a baptized child of God means you are now enslaved to Christ Jesus. You are no longer bound to the devil and the world. You are now bound to Christ. You're bound to his faith, bound to his joy, bound to his desires, bound to live that way now. And we don't like bondage. We're, we're the nation of freedom. We don't want to speak this way about bondage. I'm not bound to anybody. Well, yes, you are. You're bound to Christ. You're bound to suffer as he did. You're bound to rise as he did. You are bound to live as he does. That is who you are now in Christ. That's who Paul is saying, I'm a slave of Christ. I am a child of God. And on top of this, I'm also an apostle. Not only did Christ free me from my bondage to sin, death, and the power of the devil, he then placed me into the office of the holy ministry, into the office of apostle, to be sent out, right? That's what that apostle means, is one who's sent out, and he's sent out to preach the good news of the kingdom, to preach the good news of the gospel. And that gospel frees you from the devil and binds you to Jesus. And when bound to Jesus now, he is the one who answers for us. And it's beautiful. I, I, um, you really see a good use of this type of language in uh, Dr. Nordling's commentary on Philemon. Isn't it Philemon, I think? Yeah, Philemon, in the Concordia Commentary series. It, it's a very important term. And, and like you said, one that we are not prone to use as Americans. We don't like to think of ourselves as slaves. We're Americans. We've never been slaves to anyone, is, is the thought that we might have. And, and yet, Paul here, this is his primary identity that that he is a slave he's bound to christ jesus and i like that that distinction this is who he is in christ as a christian and his vocation is apostle one who is sent sent to preach and he, he uses the term set apart for the gospel of god so before we take our break pastor i'll take us into that final phrase there in verse one set apart for the gospel of god 
is his job, his vocation. He has been set aside. Another word for that could be sanctified, set aside in a holy way to do this work, to preach the gospel of God. He's set apart to do that. And it's all, yet again, God's work doing it. He didn't place himself into that office. Like you mentioned with the Damascus Road, Jesus appeared to him and placed him in it. So that's a great comfort, not just for uh, we who hear the word, but for pastors, is you're not placing yourself into this office. Christ is placing you into it. You're not entering into it. You are being brought into it by Christ, set aside to do this work. I've said to my congregation many times, I'm good for one thing, forgiving your sins and preaching the gospel. Besides that, I'm not good for anything. And that's good. Let me be used for that. Abuse me for that. Use me until I'm completely ragged and can't be used anymore for it. That's the point, is we're set apart to preach the gospel, to preach the good news that in Jesus you are forgiven. And that's what Paul has been set apart to do for the Roman Church. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa, host of Thy Strong Word, taking your questions as we go through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter. Let's read together with guest pastors from around the country and the church around the world, taking chapters and verses together in context, every passage fitting together in the Lord Jesus, because He is the Word of God. Let's read together. Thy Strong Word, weekday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Underwritten by Lutheran Heritage Foundation, lhfmissions.org. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of Word and Work be busy on your corner. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Easter Wednesday, April 15th. We are starting the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, with Pastor Chris Hull of Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, prior to the break, we, we introduced the book. We've been looking at that first verse where Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, one bound to him, set apart, put into the vocation of apostle. He is the one sent to preach, to preach the gospel of God is what he says. And then he, he launches into what that gospel is. Already here in the very first few verses of this, we get this doctrine. What is, what is it that Paul is sent a, 
sent to preach, set apart to preach. And so he starts defining what this gospel of God is in verse two. The first thing he says, this is something that is promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What Take us into that verse, Pastor Hall. When you read that verse, you, you kind of remember the words of Abraham to the rich man with Lazarus by his side, right? Is They have the prof, law and the prophets. Let them listen to them. <clears throat> this isn't anything new. The gospel is not something that just all of a sudden sprouted up with Jesus. It's not all of a sudden like it came up, you know, John the Baptist and Jesus. Now we have the gospel. We're not Marcionites. Marcion is this, I know, I know it's probably, he's probably mentioned a few times on the program. He's this early church heretic that rejected that, uh, that Old Testament God. You know, he rejected, this is like the angry God, the God of the law. We only follow this, this is loving God, the Jesus God. So he accepted certain parts of the, the New Testament, certain parts of Paul. <clears throat> but he rejected the Old Testament. And you see that a lot in, in certain things today, certain people. Like even when you get a, um, what is it called, that little pocket Bible, the it has like the New Testament in it with the Psalms. So it's like, okay, we don't need the Old Testament, I guess. Um, or even, even our lectionary, right? Uh, it didn't have the Old Testament readings for the longest time. It had just the gospel and epistles, didn't it? If you look at like TLH. In certain areas, there's no. Am I right with that or no? There's I, I no think there were Old reading. Testament readings there, but they weren't perhaps as as central as they started to be yeah. later on. <clears throat> yeah. So it's this thing: is the gospel is there in the Old Testament? It's bleeding throughout it. Genesis three fifteen is the the prominent one, right? He shall crush your head, you shall bruise his heel. You look at Genesis 22, Abraham sacrificing Isaac on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And Jesus even says in John 8, Abraham saw my day, not he sees it now, but saw my day and was glad and rejoiced at it. You see the gospel throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets. Uh, This coming Sunday, Ezekiel 37, the Old Testament reading, the valley of dry bones, by the word, life is given. The gospel is there. It's nothing new that Paul is preaching here. This has always been. Jesus isn't plan B. He's not the second option. He's not the contingency plan. He is the plan. He is the will of God. And this is from all eternity. From all eternity, Jesus is the Redeemer. Right. And I, there's so much that we could just talk about here in verse 2 that, again, this is what the entire Old Testament is about. I, I think of what Jesus says to his apostles after his resurrection in Luke 24, when he opens their minds to understand <clears throat> the scriptures, and he, he tells them that the scriptures are to be proclaimed. What's it all about? It's all about the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus that's to be preached for repentance and forgiveness in his name. And that's the summary of the entire Old Testament. And, and Paul is saying the same thing here, that that all of this that Paul's about to proclaim to them in this epistle is what the entire Old Testament is about. And, and I think, you know, through his prophets, that includes the, the writing prophets, Moses, Elijah, not Elijah, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, mm-hmm. and, and also the yeah. other prophets. You, you mentioned Abraham. Uh, think of uh, farther back, Noah, these prophets who didn't necessarily write, but in their own lives also showed forth the coming of, of the Christ. Think of Abraham and Isaac. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, Peter tells us. So, so the entirety of, of the Old Testament 
is pointing forward, pointing to this very gospel. Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that the mm -hmm. offspring would come and crush the serpent's head. This is what the entire Old Testament is about. And I, I also think it's, it's worth pointing out, too, just as, as a, to those who might deny something like this, that look at what Paul thinks of the Old Testament. Paul believes that the Old Testament is not man's word, but this is God's word. And it's it's the exactly. promises of God as well. It's it's not just commands, right? This is this is God's promises. This is such a, a wonderful view of the Old Testament, and one that we would do well to to give or to cling to ourselves as Christians today. Oh, absolutely. When when you look at the theology of the Old Testament, going through it, I mean, looking at the Psalms, L Luther spent so many years teaching on the Psalms. Um, you know, what is, oh, where, who says it? The Psalms are but a commentary on the, the first commandment. It's just a commentary on God. It's prayer. It's all gospel. It's a gift for you. And uh, we would do well to, to digest it. I love it in that prayer. I hate the new prayer it has. Take it to heart. That sounds so silly. Um, but inwardly digest the word. And what better time than we have than now? We have the quarantine, stay at home, digest the word, memorize it, read the tar out of it. It's fun times. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So there in the Holy Scriptures, these promises of God through the prophets, Paul then in verse 3 says it's all about his son. And, and he starts to say, well, who is this son of God? The first thing he says about the son of God is that he was descended from David according to the flesh. What's Paul saying there? He's true man, right? We say it in the in the small catechism, born of the Virgin Mary is my Lord. So you have Mary who is the descendant of, of David. He is of the house and lineage of David. He is true man. He's not God with the appearance of man. He is real flesh, real blood, real bones. That's who Jesus is, real man. Right. And, and particularly connecting him to David, then that's the promise of the Christ, that he would come through right. the line of David. Well, correct. He's the Messiah. He is the one that was to come, who is to come, who has come. He is this one. He is the descendant of David, who's the descendant of Judah, who's the descendant, you know, all the way back. Uh, he is the Messiah. So this son of God is descended from David according to the flesh. He is true man. He is your brother. It's not some sort of fake humanity or a, a mirage. This is a reality that Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh. And he is also declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Goodness, there's there's so much there, Pastor Hall. It's it's one long string of, of clauses to, to put together. The first thing that, that maybe sounds a bit strange to us is that Jesus was declared to be the son of God. Does that mean that Jesus wasn't the son of God at some point? What does that mean <laughs> that he was declared to be the son of God? Well, as we look through, and, and that, that came up, right? You, you, oh, which heresy is this where, like his baptism, he's declared to be God. Like that's where he received the, oh, what was his name? It wasn't Serenthus. No, it wasn't him. Was it him? I, I'm not positive who taught it, but I believe it's, it's sometimes called adoptionism, that Jesus was adopted yeah, yeah. as the son of God at that moment. 
Yeah, it's like this is when boom, he's like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll claim him as my own type thing, um, and that's where it can be taken. But when we can, the key to this verse is connecting it to the resurrection. Is in the resurrection, we have this declaration that he is God. It says all throughout it. Until that time, they still didn't understand. Even John twenty, um, this past Sunday, the. Easter, not sunrise, but the Easter day reading from John 20, when St. John outruns Peter and everything, it says they still didn't understand what was going on. They still didn't get it. And they don't get that this is God in the flesh. And even these guys, Peter, James, and they saw the transfigured Christ talking with Moses and Elijah, but they still don't get that this is God in the flesh. But in the resurrection, showing his hand, showing his side, he is God. This is him being declared God to all of us, so it's a preaching to us. He is God according to his person. It's not he's God because he he did a great job and God finally adopted him. But in his resurrection, it is preached to the whole world that this is who God, this is who he is. Like Saint Paul says, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is in vain because we don't preach Christ crucified as just a mere man. We preach that God died on the cross for us. And in his resurrection, this is declared to us. The reality that was there all along, that Jesus is the Son of God, is then proclaimed, particularly through this resurrection from the dead. And and Paul says that that happens in power according to the spirit of holiness. This is, And this is something maybe we would just skip by without noticing, but notice how Trinitarian Paul is already from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. It's just full. You have this understanding of him being the son of God. You have the Holy Spirit there. It's the work of the Trinity. And who is the one that preaches Christ is the Holy Spirit. His job is to point to Christ. And what does the son do? The son justifies you that you may stand before the father. It's all Trinitarian. So Jesus, just to to summarize, because this is one of those, I think you were you were laughing because you ended a sentence with a preposition. And I don't know that Paul ends a sentence with a preposition here, but it's a run-on sentence, right? It's just oh, yeah. one thing after another that Paul strings together. So so try to trying to keep all of this together, Paul has, has said that he's a servant of Christ. He's bound to Christ. He's sent as an apostle to preach the gospel of God. And that gospel, that's what was promised in the Old Testament throughout the Old Testament. That's what it's about. And it's centered in the Son. And the Son is descended from David according to the flesh. He's true man. He's our brother. And he is also true God. And that has been announced to the world through his resurrection. And then and then Paul, Paul repeats his name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that... I don't want to skip over that either, especially Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the basic Christian confession in the New Testament that Jesus is Lord. Why is that so important, Pastor Hall? Well, Luther emphasizes that in the large catechism in the second article. He he talks about this word Lord. What does it mean? It means he's our redeemer. He is the one that has rescued us from the jaws of hell, from the terror of death, from the assaults of the devil. He has rescued us from all this. He has claimed us as his own. He is our Lord. He is the one who did, who looks out for us, who takes care of us, who forgives us, who protects us. This is who this guy is. Jesus is not a taskmaster. He's not a far-off deity that demands worship and obedience. He is our Lord. 
who takes care of us, who does everything for us, who sustains us along our pilgrimage that we may be ushered, um, like Gerhard would say, through the strife of this life to his joys immortal. That's who Jesus Christ is for us. He is our Lord. And it's beautiful in these first verses, you see this very creedal way of speaking. Like when people say, well, I like, I don't believe in creeds. Well, don't read the first seven verses of Romans then, because it's a beautiful creed, confessing who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, who Jesus is. And it's beautiful. It, it is. And, and I, I like the, the transition that you made here. Here's who God is in these first four verses. This is, this is particularly what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, this is not just a matter of historical fact. These are events that happened, but they are events that happened for you. In, in verse 5, mm -hmm. Paul starts to make that transition. He says, through whom, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we've received grace. Let's just stop there. We've received grace. Why is that such a key term? Well, she passed away 30 years ago. Sorry, have you, have you seen that one, Christmas Vacation? Sorry, you keep referencing movies I haven't seen, Pastor. Oh, man, Brother to, Apple. Okay, I'm, do that I'm one before you do more of my, I'm going to have to spend more of my time yeah. watching movies during this quarantine. I tell you, that's all I teach people is movie references. No, it's a fun one. <laughs> no. Grace, it, it's this understanding it is that everyone kind of fuses grace and mercy um, together all the time, and, and they do. I mean, relate to each other, but grace is the opposite of our work. It's, it's purely out of God's generosity that we are saved. We have received his gracious heart, his generous heart. You have that parable of the tenants, right? They work throughout the day, some all day, some barely, like just clocking in, yet they each receive a denarius. And what does the guy say? Don't begrudge me my generosity. I want to give. And in Christ, that's who we have in the Father. We have this God who desires to empty himself out fully for us, to give to us. And that's what Christ purchased and won on the cross for us. Rather than wrath and condemnation because of our sin, we receive grace. We receive the generosity of the Father because of Jesus. Beautiful, beautiful. So we've we've received grace and apostleship. We've we've talked about that to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, now that that's how the ESV reads here: the obedience of faith. And and to our Lutheran yeah. ears, that might strike us a bit odd that we we've just been talking this whole time that justification is not a work that we do; it's a gift declared by God to us, received through faith. And here Paul says the obedience of faith. What do we do with that? Well, the Greek, that's the fun part when translating it from Greek to English. It sounds weird sometimes. And it really, it really says the listening to faith or li like listening to the faith type thing. And that, that sounds better to us than obedience, but really obedience, we automatically relate ourselves to like a dog. Well, I have to go to obedience school. I have to be a good boy. Well, no, it's, it's, look at Mary is the better example here, not Mary, the mother of God. There's so many Marys. You think they would have had, must have been like year of the Mary back in those days. Like, I'm going to name my daughter Mary. But you have Mary and Martha, and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and 
Jesus even says she, she's chosen the better thing, the thing that cannot be taken away. This is what it's talking about is hanging on every word of Christ. Or as we sing in our hymn, faith clings to Jesus' cross alone and rests in him unceasing. Uh, that's a salvation unto us has come. When we look at this, listening to faith, this is given so that we may be attentive only to the voice of Jesus, only to the words of Jesus. Um, I know sometimes we, we confessional guys, maybe me, myself, we, we get a bad rep for despising contemporary worship and stuff like that. But sometimes good songs, you know, come around. And what's the one is called uh, uh, Jesus, only Jesus, I think is what it's called. Have you heard this one, only Jesus? I have not. More yeah. references, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry. I have to stop doing this. I, I'm sorry. I've embarrassed you, Brother Apple. I'm sorry. But the point it makes in it is it, it's all about Christ. That's the only name that needs to be remembered. That's the only voice you need to hear is Christ's voice. And we're obedient to that, meaning when we hear it, we respond to it. When that voice says, you are forgiven, we trust that we are forgiven. I mean, it, that's the reality is this is the voice that determines our existence. This is the voice that determines everything for us, is the voice of Christ. Not the voice of the devil, not the voice of the world, not the, 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 the screaming of our conscience. What matters is what Jesus says about us, and that's what we're obedient to. And that, that's the key to this word. You, you laid it out very well for us. The, this Greek word, it it's, comes, and we'll see this other times in the book of Romans. It shows up in other places in Paul, too. The Greek word is, is hupakuo, which, which literally means to, to be under the hearing of something. Mm -hmm. and, and that's exactly what you're emphasizing to us, is that we are under the hearing of Jesus' voice. And, and we know Jesus' voice primarily comes to us, as Paul has already laid out in verse 2, it comes to us in his promises. So what does it mean to be under the hearing of Jesus' promises? Well, that's that's faith, as you've, as you've rightly laid out for us. Faith is, is clinging to what Jesus' voice says alone. And so obedience yeah. is is certainly a part of that when it comes to, well, when Jesus says, do this, right? I mean, sure, we're going to do that, and that's obedience. But it, the term obedience, I think, in English is a bit narrower than than what this than what this Greek term has for us. And, and you've, I think, the and I don't know how you say this with one English word. That's the problem when it comes to translating sometimes, is there's not always one English word that, that gets the whole picture of that Greek word, but that it, we would be the uh, let's see, the obedience of faith, the the clinging to Jesus word of faith or, or something yeah. to that effect. I, I don't I don't know exactly well, how to do that. This is why you but... and I know the Greek, right? This is why you and I study the Greek at seminary. This is why we know it. This is why every pastor should exercise himself every day in translating the text. Um, one way I did it, one, it's every week, right? We We translate the text to prep for our sermon on Sunday. But I've started buying up these. Well, I always handwrite my sermons, so I, I love using journals. But I buy these nicer ones. And what I do is I choose a book of the Bible to translate for each of my children. So, like, right now I'm walking through translating Matthew for my oldest son, Lonnie. And I was hoping to get it done by the time he receives his first communion, but I'm being, I've been lazy. So maybe I'll, I'll this can kick me in the right direction and get it going. Um, but to translate it and give it to them with notes I have in it on certain words. And, but this is why your pastor knows it. Uh, so encourage your pastor. 
in his study of grief. Give him time to study it each week. You know, say, and not not to hound him about it, but say, thank you, Pastor, for learning this language I don't know so that you can give me a better, because if you read this just obedience of faith, you go, oh, well, that's the point of the Christian life is that I be obedient, that I be good, that I be... <laughs> but no, if you actually know this, then you can say, no, this is the point. Sorry to cut you off. I, I didn't mean to. My bad. No, no, it, it's good. That's good. That's, that is why it's important to take a look at the Greek to, to get the fullness of what Paul is writing here to the Romans and to us. So, and, and now he, he starts to make that turn. He, he's talking about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, for Jesus' name, among all nations, right? Jew and Gentile, including you, he says, including you Romans who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, Paul now says, this is who I'm addressing to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Remember how Paul identified himself as a servant and apostle. Here he identifies the church as those loved by God, as those called to be saints. Why is that so important? Those two identifications for the Roman church, why is that so important, Pastor Hall? Well, it's God doing, taking the initiative. He loves you. We, we love because he first loved us. And Paul says later in the epistle, while we were still being sinners, while we were still being enemies, Christ died for us. He loves you. He's called you out of darkness. He's called you to be a saint. And saint means one who is set aside to receive holy things. You are one who is set aside to receive the holy things of God. And because of that, you are holy. And because of that, you live a holy life, but it's all God working for you to make you holy, to declare you his saint. And then we come to those familiar words, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Words that many Christian pastors still use today to introduce their sermons. Words that, again, we might be tempted just to pass by. Oh, we know what mm -hmm. that means. We've talked about mm -hmm. grace, that undeserved gift of God, purely out of his love for us. What about peace, Pastor Hall? Peace. I would highly recommend uh, CPH came out with the, the two-volume series of Luther's sermon last year. They're like the paper-bound ones. Um, beautiful. And if you read the sermon for this coming Sunday, Quasimodogenity, you see Luther emphasizes what peace is over and over again. And Gerhardt does this as well. Peace from God is not a peace like we have a temporal peace, like uh, we all can sense with this uh, COVID-19 or the Rona, whatever you want to call it, is whenever it's kind of gone, we'll have peace now because it's been removed. It's gone away now. We have peace when the enemy goes away. Like if you're in a city and your enemy retreats and goes away, you have peace. Uh, when you have that person in your life that's causing you trouble and all of a sudden they move away, you have peace because that problem has been removed. But our peace is different because Jesus says, I do not give to you as the world gives. His peace is not the removal of the problem in your life. His peace is the removal of sin from your heart, the removal of the wrath of God, the removal of a bad conscience, and in its place, his forgiveness, his righteousness and love. So you are created in him, and that's why we sing, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
his peace is not the removal of problems in your life, but now you have been claimed from the problems of your life and destined for eternity with God. So it's that, in that peace, we now have joy in this life knowing I'm destined for eternal bliss. <laughs> so whatever comes my way in this life will not take the peace that Christ has given to me. Pastor Hall, this has been a great conversation on these first few verses of the Book of Romans. We've got just under two minutes left here on the morning. Wrap things up, summarize, give us the comfort that is ours from this text. It's that last verse, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not punished by God. You receive his generosity. You receive the greatest gift the Father could ever give, the bright jewel of his crown, Jesus the Christ, on the cross for you, all of your sin. They're wrapped up in Jesus, put to death. His blood drowns it. You are claimed. He is your lamb that bore your sin, and by his wounds, by his stripes, you are healed. And those wounds didn't go away. It's not like when he rose from the dead, the Father took those scars. Those scars are still in his hand, in his side, on his brow, and they are shown unto eternity that this is how you are saved. You are saved by what Christ did for you, that you may have peace in this life especially in this time of uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen. You look around you, you don't know what the government's going to say. You don't know how your next grocery trip's going to be. You don't know when you're going to get to go see your grandma or your wife again in the nursing home or your husband again and actually sit with them and enjoy and hold their hand. You don't know when you get to be in church again just yet and sing your hallelujahs and rejoice with your brothers and sisters. You don't know all these things. You don't know. Well, that relationship that's been destroyed in this time by heightened uncertainty and sensitivity, can it be mended again at the end of this? The answer of all this is the peace of Christ is yours. You have been claimed by God. Pastor Chris right. Hall is the pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas, helping us this morning with Romans chapter yeah. one, verses one through seven. Paul, writes a magnificent letter to the Christian church at Rome to give them the fullness of the gospel, that our human righteousness cannot save us, but the righteousness given by Jesus Christ, true man and true God, raised from the dead, that righteousness can, will, and does save us sinners. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.